0: to the Parotid Tumor Podcast, where we educate and empower patients to make informed decisions about their medical care. I'm your host, Heidi Seaman, and my parotid tumor diagnosis inspired me to help others. Often joined by my own surgeon and other health professionals, we will be discussing a variety of parotid tumor topics and answering patient questions. No matter where you are in your parotid tumor journey, we are here to support you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode, where we will be discussing general anesthesia. There are many things that concern patients about parotid surgery, and one of those things is anesthesia. I had never had surgery before having my parotid tumor removed, and I know that I was concerned about how it might affect me during surgery. If you are like me and have concerns about general anesthesia, this episode is for you. We are fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Paul Warner from the Department of Anesthesia and Perioperative Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Warner attended medical school and completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic. He comes from a long line of anesthesiologists in his family who have all dedicated their careers to this field of study. And Dr. Warner is currently the medical director of the Post-Anesthesia Care Unit at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Warner will be discussing how general anesthesia works and we'll address some of the common concerns that patients have about this topic to help patients understand the process and to help alleviate some of the fear and anxiety that they may feel about receiving general anesthesia. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Warner. We're very excited to have you on the show today. I noticed in your bio that you have won the Teacher of the Year Award multiple times, including the Mayo Clinic Teacher of the Year Award Hall of Fame. So I think that you are definitely a perfect person to be able to teach us about anesthesia. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Yeah, yeah. You're very welcome. I'm super excited to be here. and Thanks for having me.
0: So, Dr. Warner, uh, there are many patients who have never had surgery before, and I am one of those people that falls into that category, and there are many people who are concerned about general anesthesia or have questions about it just because it's not familiar to them. So, can you explain how the process of general anesthesia works?
1: Yeah, of course. I'd be happy to. Uh General anesthesia is one of the things that we can do as anesthesiologists or as anesthesia providers, such as a CRNA or an anesthesia assistant. Now, in terms of our, I would say what anesthesiologists do as their primary job is to keep patients safe during their procedural context or their surgical context. That's to say that In order to do the procedure or the surgery, we are the people who are in charge of making sure that everything is done safely that's not procedural or surgical specifically in nature. And I think that's, if you break it down into that simple thing, we're basically there to make sure that people have a smooth, safe experience throughout the periprocedural or perisurgical um, course. So there's different types of anesthesia. You can do things simply, you know, if you're going through, let's say you're going through labor and delivery because you're going to have a baby, we can do things as simple as uh, offer different measures for uh, anxiety control, pain control, such as aromatherapy or hot tub therapy, uh, music therapy, pet therapy, etc. Uh, we can do things as you know, as far as uh, spinal anesthetics, epidural anesthetics for pain control during labor and delivery, or we could do sedation, which is a gradient of anesthesia, or we could do full anesthesia, where we drift people all the way off to quote unquote sleep. And then we can even do things as, as, um, as, uh, I would say as complex as things like ECMO or cardiopulmonary bypass, where we're actually taking the patient's heart and causing it to go into a standstill and, uh, keeping them asleep during that period of time. So there's a, there's a lot of gradations of anesthesia. In terms of, uh, what's general anesthesia, general anesthesia is one of those gradients and it's, the one where most people will have for a surgery where we simply give them medications that make them go completely unconscious, so they won't remember hearing, feeling, seeing anything after the induction or the start of anesthesia until we turn off those medications.
0: So the um, general anesthesia is what is primarily used in parotid surgery, correct? Correct. Correct and so if a patient is having general anesthesia during parotid surgery is there you know a period of time where they might have like a tube put down their throat or or something that um they can expect to have happen to you know help their breathing during surgery
1: yeah, great point. That is very common for parotid-based surgery like the ones that we do here at Mayo Clinic and around the world. Um, so most of those are going to be general anesthetics like you mentioned. So again, general anesthesia is going to be typically in this modern era, we, what will happen is you'll go through the day of surgery. Or you'll go through the pre-operative area where you get checked in, and the surgeons and the anesthesiologists or uh, anesthesia team will come and see you at that point. Um, they'll probably the nurses may or may not give you medications during that period of time. They'll ask you a bunch of questions about your surgery. They'll ask you a bunch of questions about your anesthetic history. So how have your prior anesthetics gone? Um, And they'll ask you a bunch of questions about your medical history. That's very common. Um, Usually takes uh, the check-in process for most pre-op areas takes about, um, I'd say somewhere around uh, 15 to 30 minutes. Um, And then what will happen after we've asked all those questions, we'll bring you back to the operating room once we've cleared those questions. Uh, You'll have an IV placed. uh, An IV will either be placed in pre-op Or it'll be placed in the OR or in the procedural suite. Um, So once we have the IV, typically then we'll uh, start anesthesia via the IV itself. Um, There are circumstances where people may not be able to get an IV right away. Uh, So we may give them a mask and give them some mask-based gas anesthesia, that's quite rare in this day and age, unless it's maybe a pediatric or a kid-based anesthetic or uh, surgery. Otherwise, for most adult patients, uh, for prodded surgeries, they're going to have an IV before they come back to the OR. And then we'll give them some medications through the IV to make them fall asleep. And a lot of patients um, will say, well, I had a mask when I went to sleep. That's very common. We usually use a mask to give people 100% oxygen before we uh, start the anesthetic so if you have a mask it may smell like plastic which kind of smells like gas honestly and a lot of people remember that smell that smell is usually just the plastic in the mask itself and then we give you concentrated 100 percent oxygen so that we make sure that your, your lungs have plenty of oxygen because as soon as we give you the anesthesia, a lot of times you won't be able to breathe anymore after that point in time. Now, fortunately, you don't remember that because you also lose consciousness uh, before that period of time. So while you're getting the anesthetic, you'll likely just fall asleep or feel like you fell asleep. And I often tell patients when I see them in pre-op, I say, um, you're having parotid surgery. We do this with a general anesthetic. That means you're all the way off to sleep. And we always offer a full round-trip ticket when we go on anesthesia airlines. Your ticket is your IV, and we're going to give you all your cocktail medications right through the IV. We have all those cocktails right back there in the ORs for you. And then we get you a food service once we land the plane safely back in the post-operative care unit when you're recovering from anesthesia. Oftentimes, that uh, kind of like calms people down. It's very it's very normal to be anxious before anesthesia and before surgery. It's not okay. something that we go through every day. And actually, most anesthesiologists and surgeons haven't had it personally every single day. Um, that would be odd. Um I mean, a lot of us haven't even ever had anesthesia before. Um, but it's very common to be nervous beforehand, and we want to try to alleviate that anxiety as much as we can. Um once you're asleep, what happens is the lights simply dim. And that's what I tell patients. The lights simply dim and then they feel like they literally just pop right back on. Um, and like no time has really passed at all. You don't really dream. People say you dream during anesthesia and you can have uh, thoughts when you're waking up or going to sleep uh, at the beginning or the end of the of the anesthetic, but you don't dream during the anesthetic. But sometimes people remember dreaming. That's just because they're having thoughts as they either start anesthesia or end anesthesia. But uh, like you said, we usually will place a a breathing device during specifically for parotid surgery. So you may have a sore throat afterwards. Um, That's very common after having general anesthesia with a, what we call an endotracheal tube or a breathing tube. Does that uh, answer some of that question for you? It does. it does.
0: It does. And it clearly, um, you know, demonstrates for the audience about how much, you know, goes into making sure that patients are safe during surgery and, and having all these procedures followed. And, you know, I think that um, for anyone who's concerned, it it helps to know that, you know, there's people like you that have thought through this entire procedure and who are there just to make sure that patients are Safe, And it sounds like one of the things that you do to make sure patients are safe is to ask them a series of questions on the day of surgery to ensure that they are in the right, um, you know, not only frame of mind, but also the right health condition to receive general anesthesia. So are there some patients who also require a physical exam before surgery to determine if they're a good candidate for general anesthesia?
1: Yeah, for pretty much every anesthetic that we do irrespective of the level of anesthesia we will always do a physical examination and medical review surgical review and prior anesthesia review with the patient whether it's the same day of surgery or whether it's maybe you know days or weeks in advance of the surgery cuz sometimes we'll do anesthesia clearance before a specific surgery or for a specific patient based on their medical history but every day when you come for your anesthetic that very day we will talk to you about your physical exam we'll do that we'll we'll ask you a bunch of questions about prior anesthetics about your medical history and your surgical history
0: are there certain things that a patient can expect to have happen during the exam? Like what exactly are you looking for with this exam?
1: So typically what will happen when the anesthesiologist or anesthesia provider comes and sees you in the preoperative area. That's where, again, you get checked in the morning or day of your surgery. A lot of times what will happen is you'll you'll end up feeling like you answer a bunch of questions many times over and over. Uh, That is a part of a safety check for every patient that comes through an operating room. And that is just to make sure that we're always doing the right thing for the right person. So you may answer mit- multiple times. Are you? Have you had anything to eat or drink today? For instance, that will probably be asked two, maybe three, maybe four times. And that's just to make sure that we're doing things safely for the patient. Because we don't. Again, we we do not want to cause harm, and we want to make sure that patients are safe throughout the entire uh, operative. Period. So um, typically, what will happen is when the anesthesiologist comes in, we will say, um, Hi, which, what's your name? Where are you from? What are you having done? Who's your surgeon? Just to verify that we have the right information for that perspective. Once we verify that, uh, oftentimes we'll then talk to them about their prior medical history. So that includes a lot of things, but specifically, we want to know how is their heart? How are their lungs? Have they ever had anything? severe like seizures or strokes or heart attacks? Have they ever had any weird rhythms of their heart? That would be something like maybe people have heard of this, but atrial fibrillation or some other kind of weird heart rate. And we asked them how their prior anesthetics have been if they've had surgery before. And then we ask them what type of surgeries we've had before so we know if they've had any heart surgeries or any lung surgeries, any brain surgeries, any spine surgeries. Those are really important pieces of the information that we need as anesthesiologists to make sure that we can safely guide a patient through their anesthesia and surgical course. During the exam part, we typically will listen to the heart and lungs with a stethoscope, um, and then we'll make sure that... Patients are uh, not having fevers, chills, um, things like that. We will also typically have them do an airway evaluation. So typically that just means we have them open their mouth really, really wide, as wide as they can. And then we'll just look through the mouth to make sure that everything looks overtly normal, um, to make sure that there aren't any lesions or weird findings in the mouth, to make sure there aren't any loose teeth, to make sure that uh, the mouth opens well. And the reason we do that is because if you're getting uh, anesthesia, oftentimes we have to help you breathe. And in order to do that, we may need to place a breathing device. And what we're looking for are physical features of the patient's face and neck and jaw to see if there's anything overtly concerning that would maybe make us feel like we wouldn't be able to uh, help the patient breathe after they stop breathing with anesthesia.
0: So you had mentioned that patients will be asked multiple times, you know, uh, what they've had to eat or drink uh, before they have anesthesia. So when do patients need to stop eating and drinking things uh, before they have anesthesia and why is that important?
1: When uh, people have surgery um, and anesthesia for general anesthesia, oftentimes we say that they cannot protect their airway after general anesthesia has started. What that means is typically when you eat something, let's say you eat like uh, a couple of peanuts, and just the tiniest amount, just a fragment of that food, if it touches near your vocal cords, um, you'll cough. That's a normal reflex that all vertebrate animals have. Um, when, When this happens under general anesthesia, if something were to touch your vocal cords and you're already under general anesthesia, you lose all of those normal reflexes to protect your lungs from foreign material such as food. So the problem is if you eat within some period of time before anesthesia and your stomach is full, unfortunately, some of those contents may come back up because you lose a lot of your muscular tone during anesthesia. and That's a normal feature of anesthesia. And if your stomach's full, some of those food contents or liquid contents could theoretically or practically come back up into your throat. And because you can't protect your airway, they may go into your lungs, which is is very not good., uh, it's not normal to have anything but air in your lungs. So that's why we tell patients to stop eating or drinking before anesthesia. And the time frame for that is uh, a little bit debated, but from the American Society of Anesthesia, which is our national organization, they have very, very, very straightforward guidelines for this. If you are going to have general anesthesia, you cannot eat a full meal eight hours before your procedure. So oftentimes what I will tell patients when I see them, let's say for instance, um, before their anesthetic, if I'm in the, the pre-operative clinic where we evaluate people before they have surgery and anesthesia, uh, I will tell patients that the night of their uh, the night before their surgery, they can eat and drink whatever they'd like, um, take their medications as they would like, and at midnight, we'll have them stop eating or drinking, or sorry, we'll have them stop eating anything at that point in time. So at midnight, we say just stop eating anything. The reason we say that is most people won't have surgery for eight hours after midnight because most surgeries won't happen until elective. That means surgeries that people are choosing to have. Those surgeries typically won't start until usually seven, eight, nine o'clock in the morning, the following morning. So that gives us a buffer of eight hours typically. Um, So at midnight, Please stop eating anything. You may still drink clear liquids until the time that you arrive to the hospital. What that means is you can have water based uh, fluids. Um, It can't be anything with like dairy or cream or dairy substitutes, but you can still drink like clear water based liquids like soda, diet soda. Coffee, tea—it just has to be free of any dairy or dairy substitute products. And the reason that that's important is we want you to be well hydrated before you come to your surgery. That helps you in a number of ways to feel better, and it also helps us as anesthesiologists and surgeons because you have more, um, you're you're better dehydrated. Sorry, you're better hydrated, and you're not dehydrated.
0: So yeah that that was one of the great pieces of news when I had my uh Pre um, anesthesia discussion was that I was allowed to have at least black coffee. Coffee personally brings a lot of joy to my life. And I thought that I wasn't going to be able to have it before surgery. So that was something that um, I was surprised to learn that you can have that. But again, I was advised, like you just said, not to put any creamer in it or anything like that. But so if there are other people out there who enjoy their caffeine as much as I do, I was very happy to learn that news that I was allowed to have. Some coffee prior to surgery. Um, you had also touched on the fact that, um, you know, some patients may be taking vitamins, supplements, or medication. So, are there certain timeframes in which they need to stop taking those things prior to surgery? And does it depend on whether it's a vitamin supplement or a medication?
1: Typically, when we talk about medications before surgery and anesthesia, there are specific medications we will want you to take. And there are other medications we specifically will not want you to take. And then there are medications where we don't really know um, if, if you need to continue them or not. What we typically tell patients beforehand is that if they're taking vitamins or supplements that aren't essentially crucial to their well-being, so some people have metabolic uh, issues where their genes, their genetics, or their metabolism is altered and they have a disease because of that. They may need those vitamins or supplements. That's quite rare. The majority of people who have, who choose to have surgery, which again we call elective surgery, the majority of patients having elective surgery are on just regular old vitamins and supplements that they get from the store. I would say, and most of us would say to not take those the day of surgery. So we'd say, you know, stop taking your vitamins and supplements the day of surgery. However, you can take XYZ medications and you can stop taking XYZ medications a few days before surgery. Those specific medications are going to vary on a case by case basis, but a lot of times, medications that we're concerned about are medications that cause people to have bleeding during surgery. Oftentimes, people are on things like aspirin. Um, Sometimes people are on medications that are what we would call a little heavier than aspirin that can precipitate um, bleeding. We may have you hold those medications, but that's going to vary on a case-by-case basis, and you should really talk to your surgeon or your anesthesiologist, or if you see someone before surgery, like a family medicine doctor or an internal medicine doctor, and you're seeing them for anesthesia clearance before surgery, they may tell you which medications to or not to take.
0: So it sounds like there's obviously a lot of things that are done prior to surgery to make sure that the patient is in good health condition and to make sure it's safe for them to have anesthesia. Are there certain risk factors that some patients may have that could cause them to have anesthesia that they should make sure that they discuss those things with their surgeon or with the anesthesiology team prior to surgery?
1: Yes, there definitely are. Everyone has different health You have different health than I have. I have different health than the person next to me has. And those things really matter. The specifics of your health are very important to us during your surgical period. We... Oftentimes, need to know if you've had any problems with prior anesthetics. So, let's say you had an anesthetic and you had a heart problem during the anesthetic, that would be very important for us to know. It would also be really important for us to know if you have a family member who has had a problem during surgery or anesthesia. And we would ask further questions about that. Sometimes people don't know and they might say, hey, I might ask someone, have you ever known of a family member who's had a problem with anesthesia? Oftentimes people are like, you know, I don't really know. That's perfectly fine. What that tells me is likely there hasn't been a severe issue with a family member during prior anesthetics. And can I guarantee that? No, but if there were a severe reaction to anesthesia, most of the time family members will discuss those things. Um, But we always have our guards up during anesthesia to look out for odd things. The biggest things we want to see from a patient uh, in terms of interviewing them before their anesthetic is have they had any heart problems? Have they had any breathing problems? Have they had any brain type problems like seizures or strokes? And do they have any other pre-existing diseases like diabetes where we might want to make sure that we're checking their blood sugars very closely when people get low low blood sugars or hypoglycemia? um, That often is quite bad for the brain. So we really, really want to be in the know about a lot of these medical issues.
0: So you had mentioned earlier in the podcast that there's a team of people that are obviously involved on the day of surgery to make sure that the patient is properly uh, monitored throughout surgery and that they're safe. So who exactly is going to be administering the anesthesia during surgery and will the anesthesiologist be monitoring the patient's condition during the entire surgery?
1: That's a great question. A lot of times people want to know specifics about that and that's very, very normal. The thing is depending on where you have your surgery in the United States or internationally, the person giving your anesthetic is going to vary from region to region And I say that because there are a number of people who could potentially, uh, who, who are licensed to provide anesthesia. So that could be an anesthesiologist. That anesthesiologist could be a MD medical doctor. They could be a DO doctor of osteopathy. Those are just different trainings for medical school, basically. But at the end of the day, they're both anesthesiologists. So it could be a doctor. It could be a nurse of anesthesia or a CRNA or it could be someone like an anesthesia assistant uh anesthesia anesthesia assistants uh, have a different training pathway than the our nurse colleagues and than our than our physician colleagues um but there are many different practitioners of anesthesia at Mayo Clinic we are a we there's a term for this it's called a medical direction anesthesia team or a medically directed anesthesia team what that means is There is an anesthesiologist involved in your anesthetic and there is a CRNA or a nurse anesthesia provider, a nurse anesthetist is what they're called. And the two of us, the team, will coordinate your anesthetic. So oftentimes what happens is you'll see maybe both the anesthesiologist and the nurse anesthetist in the preoperative area and we'll ask you the questions and do the physical exam that we talked about. And then when we get back to the operating room, you'll likely still see both of us. And what will happen is the two of us will help to start your anesthetic to make sure everything is safe and sound while we start the anesthesia. Um, And then oftentimes during the anesthetic, most medically directed anesthetics The anesthesiologist is also helping to oversee other anesthetics in other operating rooms. That's not to say that you don't have coverage of anesthesiology. We are always in the room with one of our anesthesia providers, whether it's a nurse anesthetist or an anesthesiologist, Um, and. That is to provide a spectrum of care for multiple uh, ORs. So we always have uh, one provider in the OR at all times, and then we have other people who are available to help in multiple cases in case there are issues in other cases as well.
0: Okay, great. So, I think that you you mentioned this earlier about what patients can expect to have happen or, or feel as they're undergoing general anesthesia, but will a patient feel any pain when the anesthesia is administered?
1: It really depends on how we administer the anesthetic and which medications are being used. Having said that, a number of patients, when I interview them for their day of surgery, will tell me that they've had Uh, pain in their arm or their hand when anesthesia is started. Typically, what that is is our most common medication to use to start anesthesia in the operating room is called propofol. Propofol is a very, very reliable medication. Unfortunately, it's gotten some pretty heavy press in the in the media in the last several years uh, most of that press has been from Michael Jackson uh, he was administered propofol as a sleeping aid which is not at all what that medication is intended for it's intended for anesthesia not sleep and unfortunately that w- became a negative outcome and, and Michael Jackson died from that propofol administration. Um, so do are, am I concerned that propofol is going to precipitate that? No, that's a completely different situation than what we're going to use it for for your day of surgery. For surgery, a lot of times when we use propofol, unfortunately, it is an irritant to the vein. So when we give it, it's a white medication. We have to have it in a white formula because that's how the drug is maintained safe inside the the glass vial. And that's how it's made. And unfortunately, that white milky substance that contains the medication inside of it, uh, that can irritate the vein. And oftentimes people will say it felt like it was burning in my hand or my arm when I got anesthesia. And that can often be disconcerting or upsetting to patients, which is completely understandable. We do have a number of other medications we can give around the same time to make that Less painful, and sometimes people don't even notice it. It really depends on a patient to patient basis. If you've felt it before, you're likely to feel it again.
0: Okay, I, and I can attest for, for you know for my surgery, I didn't feel anything at all. I did I did not have any pain, um, and I, as you have mentioned earlier, I mean I remember like them telling me to count down. And then I was the next thing I knew I was waking up from surgery. So I think most patients will probably, um, you know, fall asleep very quickly and are probably likely to not have a lot of pain during, um, anesthesia. Um, so if a patient, um, is that put under anesthesia. I know that we all kind of see stories, like you mentioned this this story about Michael Jackson, and we see different things in the news. And, you know, some things that I've seen in passing before have been like people who claim that, you know, when they were under anesthesia, at some point, you know, they woke up during surgery, and they were aware of what was happening, but they couldn't communicate to anybody that was happening. And I know when I first was, you know, going in to um, have surgery, I had never had surgery before. And so that's That was one of the things that concerned me. Like, is that a real thing that can happen? So is that something that can happen? And is that something that somebody that's having parotid surgery would need to be concerned about?
1: It's always something that we are concerned about as anesthesiologists. Do you need to be concerned about it? most people are anxious before surgery for a number of reasons, and one of those might be the the reason that you mentioned, and that's called anesthesia awareness. You may know of someone who told you that they had anesthesia awareness, or they had a family member who had anesthesia awareness. What that means, anesthesia awareness is a catch-all phrase to say that people remember circumstances around the time they were given anesthesia. In terms of that there are, again, I, I mentioned there's a number of different types of anesthesia you, you may receive. So oftentimes when I hear this and I discuss it further with patients, oftentimes when they said they remember things from their prior anesthetics and they, and they, that is anesthesia awareness. Oftentimes, those were during procedures, not surgery. So a procedure like a colonoscopy um, where, or maybe like a tooth extraction, uh, where they didn't have general anesthesia or full anesthesia. Oftentimes, those are cases where they were given sedation, and sedation doesn't make you go unconscious. So you should and you probably will remember feeling and hearing things or seeing things during a sedation case. That is very, very common. That's normal for sedation. There are different levels of sedation, and some of those levels of sedations can be quite deep, and some of them can be quite light, and that really depends on the procedure that you're having at that point in time. When we talk about anesthesia awareness during general or full anesthesia, It is extremely rare for people to have true awareness during the actual anesthetic in terms of, again, elective surgeries. Again, elective surgeries are those where people are choosing to have them. That is different than when people have had emergency surgery for a trauma or they've had emergency surgery because a baby needed to come out very, very quickly or where they were having full Uh, heart surgery, um, which is a very complex anesthetic, Um, it's more common for people to have awareness during those specific examples because we may need to limit the amount of anesthetic that they get based on the emergency of the surgery. But for truly elective chosen surgeries that people are prepared for and come in for on a day of surgery... The rate of anesthesia awareness where you may remember something during the anesthesia, that is very rare. We often quote that um, from the American Society of Anesthesia. We often quote that in maybe like the one in a thousand number to the one in ten thousand number. Um, And that's based on previous claims of anesthesia awareness.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so I think that one of the other things that concern patients is whether or not the anesthesia is going to make them feel nauseated, especially because when we're having parotid surgery, this is something that, you know, is on your face and you're going to have your incision that's going to be around your ear and, um, you know, somebody might have a neck dissection depending on the extent of their operation and the tumor that they're dealing with. And so the last thing that a patient wants to do is then feel nauseated where they might get sick after surgery. So is there something that can be done to ensure that this does not happen, such as giving a patient anti-nausea medication or is there like an anti-nausea patch that patients could ask about to help alleviate the possibility that they might feel nauseated after anesthesia.
1: We are always trying to make sure that people feel very, very good when they get done with their surgery and with their anesthetic. Um, Again, that's part of keeping people safe and trying to keep people as normal feeling as we can. So we're always trying to prevent nausea to the very, very best of our ability. People with a there are certain risk factors that people have that can make them more prone to becoming nauseated after anesthesia. Some of those risk factors are uh, female is one of them, being a young female is one of them, um, and uh, one that's actually protective against having nausea and vomiting, which is counterintuitive, is smoking. Um, so, uh, so Cigarette smoking, the one benefit of smoking cigarettes, the only benefit that I can really think of is that you can be protected from having nausea during anesthesia. It doesn't mean that you won't have nausea, it just means that it helps to protect you from it for some reason. Um, but We are always on the lookout for preventing nausea. We give a number of medications uh, to prevent nausea. Some of those medications are given before before you even go to the operating room, uh, one of those medications, like you mentioned, may be a patch. Um, that's called a transdermal or through-the-skin medication. Uh, that particular medication you're referring to is called scopolamine. Scopolamine it comes in a patch form, and it's very common that people will receive it right near their ear uh, before they go back for the operating room. But there are a number of other medications that we typically do use for anesthesia to prevent nausea and vomiting afterwards, and those are usually given through the IV itself.
0: Okay. And I can attest to that too, that I definitely um, did not feel nauseated at all. And that was something that I was concerned about. And I did have the patch and it did its job. And I felt, you know, fine when I woke up from anesthesia. Um, So, uh, on the topic of how, of waking up from anesthesia, how long can a patient expect to, for it to take for them to fully wake up from anesthesia after surgery?
1: Great question. And I just want to touch base real quick about prodded surgery in particular at Mayo Clinic for nausea and vomiting. Um, if you've had a history of nausea or you have a family member who's had a strong history of nausea or vomiting, typically we want to know about that. So just tell your anesthesia provider, hey, you know, I've had nausea after anesthesia in the past. That kind of clues us into what types of medications we might or might not want to use for your particular anesthetic. Those are important things for us to know. Um, and Oftentimes for parotid surgery at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, um, we typically use intravenous anesthesia. That's sometimes people call that a TIVA or a TIVA. That's an acronym or an abbreviation for total intravenous anesthesia where we try to avoid the gas based anesthesia. We do know that gas-based anesthesia can cause more nausea and vomiting than the IV uh, medications that we use for anesthesia. So when you get propofol, like that burning feeling that some people get when we start anesthesia, that's usually, again, from propofol. Propofol, we often will use for parotid surgery during the entire surgery, we'll use propofol to keep you to sleep. Propofol is actually protective against nausea and vomiting, and that's part of our strategy to prevent you from feeling nauseated. So I wouldn't be surprised if for your particular procedure with Dr. Moore, if you hadn't gotten a total intravenous anesthetic.
0: Okay, and so then after you know the surgery is completed, how long will it then take for a patient to wake up after the procedure?
1: Yeah, so typically when people uh, people remember being awake after anesthesia, that um, varies. Uh, in terms of when they actually wake up, they actually usually wake up in the operating room, um, and then we safely remove their breathing device. Um, oftentimes, people don't remember any of that, um, and that's because the brain isn't the same during anesthesia that it is during sleep, which is why I said quote-unquote sleep earlier. Sleep and anesthesia are very, very different in terms of how the brain is active or not active. During anesthesia, it's very, very not active. During sleep, normal sleep, your brain is actually quite active and processes a lot of information. That does not happen during anesthesia. It just kind of goes quiet. Um, So sometimes it takes people longer to wake up after anesthesia. That's highly variable. And I would say most people remember things waking up, they usually don't remember much until they're in the recovery area. That's also called the PACU, P-A-C-U. That can take, usually people are in the recovery room shortly after surgery. Most people will remember something within the first hour of anesthesia when they wake up.
0: Okay, so it can take a period of time. And I think it's important for patients to know that to not only mentally prepare for how long the entire process takes, but it's also important for family members to know that, you know, just because somebody's, you know, still in the recovery room, that there's not an issue, it just takes a period of time for the patient to wake up from that anesthesia um, and how how should a patient expect to feel once they do wake up? Are they going to feel fatigued, potentially have a sore throat, dry mouth? I mean, are there other, other things that they should expect to have happen because of the anesthesia?
1: Yeah, in terms of um, the family members, too, a lot of times the family members will see the patient um, within, you know, I'd say, like, usually roughly a half hour to an hour and a half after the surgery is completed once they've kind of gotten through the recovery phase. Um, you, the recovery phase usually takes about an hour or so. Um, and how do people feel after anesthesia? Um, they will feel a little fatigued or tired throughout the day typically. Um, so they won't feel like running a marathon. Um, they'll be a little tired. Um, they will probably have a sore throat if they had a breathing device. That is usually more of like a kind of like a an irritated voice, I would say, um, where you you just kind of had a a rough feeling voice uh, after you had maybe like a cold, for instance. Um, It's not like you lose your voice or you can't talk. It just hurts a little bit. Um, It's usually very mild and it usually is very, very time limited and goes away within a, a 12 to 24 hour period of time typically. Sometimes people will feel like they have a dry mouth. Well, that's just because you didn't have any fluid in your mouth uh, for a period of time there. And um, that's very quickly, uh, that goes away very, very quickly. Um, Otherwise, after anesthesia, typically, if you've had surgery, you may have some pain or discomfort. Our nurses in the recovery room are extremely adept at addressing any normal and abnormal situations in recovery, Uh, and one of those very normal things is uh, simply pain, Um, and we have a lot of different medications and strategies for trying to treat pain once people are having it. We try to prevent it from happening beforehand, but oftentimes people will have some discomfort after surgery, and that's very normal.
0: So how long does it typically take for anesthesia to get out of a patient's system after surgery? And is there anything that a patient can do to try to speed up that process?
1: In terms of the time frame, uh, it really depends on which anesthetic we used. Um, But I would say how long does it take for it to be completely eliminated from a, a person's body? Um, it's, it's fairly quick. Um, but the, the act, so like, let's say the content of the medication may be completely excreted from your body and out of your body shortly after anesthesia within the first hour of anesthesia or so. Having said that, you may still feel the effects of the anesthetic after that happens, so your brain might still feel fatigued or tired afterwards, and that's again just because the brain does not process the same way during anesthesia that it does during a normal night's sleep. It's very, very different, and so the the brain actually has to kind of readjust to normal again after anesthesia. Um, People who have pre-existing dementia or pre-existing Alzheimer's disease, things like that where the brain is already affected beforehand, um, that can take people quite a bit longer to recover from um, than someone who's young and healthy and has none of those brain-based diseases. Um, But that, again, depends on the anesthetics that we use, and it depends on the patient beforehand and their previous diseases.
0: Okay, so despite the fact that there are, you know, all these professionals that are working together to ensure that the patient is, you know, safe and has the best experience with surgery the idea of having anesthesia can still cause people to have a lot of fear and anxiety and they, they worry about it before surgery. So if somebody is to the point where they are so concerned about it, that they're having a difficult time, you know, getting, getting to the point where they're agreeing to have the surgery, is there something that they can take or that can be administered to them to help calm their nerves before they go into the operating room? 100%
1: yes. We have any number of different medications or strategies to help with alleviating anxiety before people go into the operating room. Sometimes those are as simple as just talking and chatting about what to expect. Oftentimes, I've found that just what I would call A lot of what a lot of us call verbal anesthesia, where either the preoperative nurse or the anesthesia provider just simply comes and talks to you about what to expect, that your concerns are very valid. a lot of times just talking through them can cause people to have quite an alleviation of their anxiety. And again, being anxious before any surgery or any anesthetic is normal. We would expect a little bit of anxiety before anyone has surgery. That's a very normal response. There are certain medications we can use if, for instance, what I say, verbal anesthesia is not working or you know, just simply like distraction. So watching TV, Talking on the phone to a friend, etc. If those things aren't working, then we do definitely have medicines that can work to alleviate nerves before going into the operating room. One of those very common medications is called midazolam. Midazolam is a very common sedative medication. It's one of those medications that's very commonly used during colonoscopies, which again I said uh, are sedation medications. And sometimes people remember things after they get midazolam. Sometimes people don't remember much after they get midazolam for an hour or two. So it really depends. Does that mean that you weren't talking to me the whole time? So let's say I gave you some anxiety medication. You may not remember talking to me afterwards, but we're still talking. We're still having a normal conversation. You just might not remember very much of it. And you'll also be quite relaxed afterwards and you'll feel just much calmer. So it's very reasonable to get those medications before anesthesia and before you go to the operating room.
0: So if there are patients who do feel that way, you know, do you encourage them to make sure that the anesthesiologist is aware of how they feel? Because I think a lot of people are maybe self-conscious and they're like, I don't want to tell them how anxious I am, but should they discuss that with the anesthesiologist so that they can make sure that they feel comfortable going into the operating room and maybe utilize some of these options that you just um, described to make sure that, that anxiety level is brought down to a reasonable level before surgery is started.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. We want to know if you're feeling anxious or you have pain or you're having nausea, any of those things, anything that just doesn't feel right or feels icky or bad, we want to know all of those things. So uh, the more that we know, the better we can tailor our medications to help you. Um, So that helps us, that information helps us immensely.
0: So there are a lot of patients who, after surgery, have... Hair loss, and I was one of those patients, and I was very shocked by this that I had this occur after surgery. And there, I know that there are many underlying causes for hair loss, such as you know stress, um, iron deficiency, hormone imbalance, you know thyroid imbalance, and things like that. And I had been tested for all of those things, and it came back normal. And that was one of the things that I know I had asked about: is is there any link between? Temporary post surgical hair loss and anesthesia? And if so, how long would it take for that to resolve?
1: So, there are certain procedures based on length of procedure and based on uh, issues during the procedure. Um, One of those issues might be low blood pressure for a sustained period of minutes or longer um, where people can get pressure-related hair loss is usually the most common finding that we see with hair loss after surgery or anesthesia. That would typically be after a very long procedure, so a multiple-hour procedure, where what happens is oftentimes the patient has to be in a certain position. For instance, for like prodded surgery, we can't really turn the head a lot during head and neck surgery because the surgeon is working on the head and the neck. If the surgeon were working on the the leg, we can simply just rotate the patient's head, and oftentimes that's good for a number of reasons. It's good because it It's normal to move during sleep because your body is responding to pressure changes and to prevent pain and to prevent hair loss, for instance. So during sleep, you're rolling around all night long. That's normal. During anesthesia, you can't roll around during general anesthesia. So sometimes for procedures where we have access to the head and the surgeon isn't doing parotid surgery, we'll oftentimes rotate the head to avoid pressure-related hair loss. Because what happens is the follicle or where the hair comes out of the scalp, um, it can get reduced blood flow and that can cause hair loss. So if a surgery is quite long and the patient's head is not turned during the surgery, patients can get hair loss. That usually resolves within six to eight weeks and the hair will come back. I don't know. Is that what what you found, uh,
0: Heidi? I I did. I did. And I, you know, want to make sure that patients realize that, I mean, in six to eight weeks can seem like a long time when you have hair loss and it can be alarming, but mine did resolve. um, And it just was something that I wanted to cover because it was something that was shocking to me. And I didn't realize before surgery that that was something that could potentially happen. Doesn't happen to everybody, but it does resolve over time. Um, So I think as we close out the discussion on general anesthesia, I just wanted to ask you as somebody who has been in this career field for a long period of time and who has interacted with so many patients, what advice do you have for patients who are afraid of having general anesthesia to the point where maybe they're putting off having surgery because they just can't get to the point where they can accept that they have to be under anesthesia? Do you have any advice to help them get through this process?
1: My strongest advice to anyone who's concerned about anesthesia is to talk with their surgeon uh, and have the surgeon arrange a pre-anesthesia medical evaluation with an anesthesiologist or another anesthesia provider. What that means is the surgeon will facilitate you visiting with an anesthesiologist before you come in to the operating room. So, this could be a day before surgery or it could be many, many days before surgery. Uh, That is very normal. Oftentimes, we do that for people who have pre-existing diseases. That could be heart disease, lung disease, brain disease, etc. And we just want to make sure that medications are correct before people come to the operating room, make sure that people have all the information that they need, and also to make any plans that we might need from an anesthesia or surgical perspective. Um, so that's very common, and if you have concerns and you're delaying potential surgeries that may be necessary um i would say for sure talk to your surgeon about seeing an anesthesiologist beforehand for what we call um anesthesia clearance or some people call a PAME which is another way to say pammy a pammy PAME um that's very common we do a lot of those and a lot of people feel much better after having a pammy and having anesthesia clearance cuz they get to talk about all these concerns beforehand
0: I agree 100%, and I did have that. Uh, I did request that, and I I had that consultation, and it did help answer a lot of questions because I think what is behind a lot of this is you know, the fear of the unknown, not only just of the surgery but of anesthesia, and that's why I think this discussion with you today is going to be so incredibly helpful to patients to just give them some understanding of what's going to happen so that they can mentally prepare for the surgery and hopefully help alleviate some of the fear and anxiety that they might have. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time and for being on the show, and I also want to thank you and all your anesthesiologists out there um, for everything that you do behind the scenes because I think that a lot of times maybe patients don't appreciate or know how much work goes behind the scenes to making sure that they are safe during surgery, and the anesthesiologists are such a huge part of that. So thank you for everything that you do every day to protect parotid patients when they're going through surgery and for being on the show.
1: Absolutely. This has been a, a wonderful experience. I really, really appreciate you reaching out to me. And um, I'm always happy to uh, uh, to entertain any questions or comments. Um, I, I, Dr. Moore and I have a very good relationship. So if you are coming through Mayo Clinic and uh, you're going to see one of our, our ear, nose and throat doctors, I know most of them very, very well. Um, and I'd be happy to also answer questions if you have anything in that regard when you come to Mayo Clinic. You're, you're very welcome, Heidi. Thanks a lot.
0: We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Parotid Tumor Podcast. You can find more information on our website, parotidpatientproject.org, including the informational videos that I film with my surgeon. The video series Parotid Tumor Guide can also be found on the Mayo Clinic YouTube channel. You can connect with our Parotid Patient Project community or send us private messages on Facebook and Instagram. You can also join the discussion by following us on Twitter at Parotid Project. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through podcast at parotidpatientproject.org. You can submit questions, suggest future topics, and provide feedback about the show. Thank you so much for listening to us today. We hope that we have shed some light on this topic while adding some relief from the stress, anxiety, and fear. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. As always, know that you are not alone in this journey. Until next time, stay positive and stay informed.